Before we begin, the following episode addresses adult content that might be disturbing or triggering to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed description. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is 1 John 1.5, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. Now, some people might take exception to what I just read. You know, if there is nothing dark about God, you might say, if he really is all goodness and light, then what about his anger and violence, particularly that we see in the Old Testament? How can we make sense of it all? That is a hard question, and if it's a question that you have, you're not alone. Here to talk about that problem and propose some approaches to understanding it is Dr. Tamara Fromm. She teaches classes in scripture and theology for a number of institutions, including the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. She's also the author of Pre-Evangelization and Young Adult Native Nuns. That is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Tamara blogs regularly on scripture and evangelization, and she spoke previously on this podcast about reaching the unchurched in a culture of relativism. Tamara, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I'm delighted to be back and speak on this topic. Oh, good. Well, it's always a joy to have you. I would like to start by quoting something that Richard Dawkins wrote in his book, uh, The God Delusion. He claims that, uh, and I want to make it clear that I'm quoting here, this is not my opinion, (laughs) the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, capriciously malevolent bully. And I actually left out five or six words there that he used. Um, You might guess that Richard Dawkins is not a fan of God. But I quote that not just because, um, at least to my ears, it's rather outrageous and attention-getting, but because many people agree with him. I listened to him say this on YouTube, and the people cheered. Um, And I ask you, Tamara, is there any justification to what he says? You know, is the God of the Old Testament a malevolent bully? Well, I think it's interesting that he says this, but of course, he is seeing this through the lens of his atheism. I would suggest that as Catholics, we are called to see the writing of the Bible, including the Old Testament, through a different lens, and that is through the lens of our faith. To kind of respond to to that with another quote, I'd like to lead off with a quote from Pope Benedict XVI. So while Dawkins suggests that the God of the Hebrews is this bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, and all those epithets that you just read, uh, Benedict states that violence is incompatible with the nature of God. Wow, that's a pretty strong contrast. And but again, we're looking at at an atheist versus the head of the Catholic Church making some very conflicting statements. Yeah. We see though in the Old Testament, I mean right from the beginning, you know, there's the the flood in which God kind of wipes out most of creation or 
the time when you transgress a single rule, like you touch the ark and boom, you're dead. <laughs> you know, or what about in you know going into the land of Canaan when God actually requires people to slaughter everybody, men, women, children, animals? It's just it's horrific. How do we read this? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that that example, Sarah, because I think this is one of, one of the most difficult passages or aspects in the Old Testament. Um, I think many Catholics and Christians in general, as you mentioned, uh, struggle with questions about God depicted in the Old Testament. But let's just start off with that one, the what we refer to as the ban. Sometimes referred to as harem. That's the the Hebrew word. So, the ban or harem warfare. The word ban really comes from that Hebrew word harem, and it has multiple meanings. So, in one sense, we could say it means to separate. It means to set aside or remove something from profane use. And it also has some other meanings, which will often show up in our Bible translations, depending on which version you use. But it can have the sense of something being devoted or dedicated or consecrated to God. Um, Another way we could read this is the ban means to utterly destroy something that is devoted or consecrated to God. So just to back up for uh, a second here, so that... Ban refers to what? What's the context that we're looking at here? We first hear the ban described in the book of Deuteronomy, um, although there is some other references throughout the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is giving some guidelines to the Hebrew people as they are beginning to come out of the wilderness and go into the promised land. This is the land that God promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And now God is beginning to fulfill that promise. But he wants again to give them some some instructions, some marching orders as they go into that land. And so again, in Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 and 2, The text says, when the Lord God brings you into the land, which you are entering to take possession of, and then it gives a whole list of these uh, uh, pagan tribes that, that already possess the land. But then when the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must utterly destroy them. And there's that word harem, utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Wow. Show no mercy. That's rough. Yeah, that sounds pretty violent, right? In much in contrast to how we perceive uh, the God of the New Testament. But if we look just a few passages down in chapter 7, verse 6, we can see the rationale for this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, this is interesting. So, in order to understand harem, we also have to look at the the meaning of the word holy in Hebrew. So the word holy in Hebrew is, is the word kadash, which means not only holy in the sense of how we think of holy is, you know, somewhat of a moral perfection, although that's another conversation we could have. The word kadash also means to separate. So in other words, when the Hebrew people are coming into this pagan land or this land that is possessed already by pagan people, God wants to separate his people from all the evil influences so that they can be a particular people, a unique people that are dedicated to him alone. 
And and also who ultimately will draw other people to him, partly by their different way of living. Absolutely. Deuteronomy 20.18 further goes on to, to give a rationale for the separateness. Um, the Bible says that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices, which they have done in the service of their gods. And so thus to, in other words, to influence you to sin against the Lord your God. So they're holy, they're to be separated. How does that go together with actually wiping the other people out? I mean, I would think part of holiness is goodness and mercy and love. And yes, you know, how, how do you put those two things together? That's a very difficult um, question. And, and I think it's, it's one that takes a little more fleshing out on this. So, for example, some scholars would suggest that this rather extreme language of the of the biblical text that is kill every living thing you know men women children animals etc is not to be taken literally but rather that it reflects a particular genre or literary style of a war report hmm. throughout the bible we do see um the use of hyperbole or exaggeration jesus uses some of this in his own text in the gospel But certainly back in the Old Testament, we see that too. So this idea of killing every living thing or destroying every living thing could be a way of exaggeration to describe a definitive victory that God is calling the people, his people, to have over the pagan nations. The other thing I think that's important is um, we need to understand the context of the culture in which the Bible was written. This is pretty difficult for for Catholics and Christians in general when they first pick up the the Old Testament. Rightly so. I think we all tend to read what we read through the lens and the time in which we're reading it. So we tend to read the Old Testament in light of what's happening in in 2023, right? But the Old Testament was written, goodness, I mean, 3,000 years ago or longer. The Old Testament was written in a culture that was much more harsh and barbaric than we know today. And in this culture, the pagan gods were expected to be vengeful. In this time of history, this late Bronze Age, warfare was very much uh, very bloody. It was very upfront. There was a lot of hand-to-hand combat. It's not as perhaps sanitized as what we are are used to in today's modern age, although uh, perhaps some recent footage and social media might challenge that a bit. But I also want to put this in again into context, into the wider part of the Old Testament. And then, of course, we can look at the New Testament. Even within the Mosaic Law, there's something known as lex talionis, or kind of as we know it more popularly, that eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth standard. So, That may sound like kind of violent to us. You know, what do you mean giving an eye for an eye? Isn't that, aren't we supposed to return good for evil? But in the context of the time, in the Mosaic Law, this is actually a limitation of the kind of violent behavior that was typical for this time. Tamara, there's also this idea that prior to Jesus coming, there wasn't yet a real remedy for sin. And so sometimes God would show violence in terms of wrathful judgment on sin and showing that there was this sort of swift execution of justice so that good could flourish because in the presence of a lot of evil, it's hard for good to flourish. 
I would agree. I the, and the concept of divine justice is a difficult one because I think we are used to in our relativistic and individualistic age, we may see justice according to our own terms. You know, as as part of this, just to get back to the you know the story of the conquest of the of the promised land and so on. There's this this story. They go in, they conquer Jericho, and then they go on to this little town called Ai. One person doesn't follow the ban. You know, part of the ban was that you devote everything to the Lord, including all the the booty or whatever the loot. And uh, <laughs> this guy Achan, you know, hangs onto a couple things and hides them in his tent. And tell what happens to him, and how do we understand that? Yeah, so exactly as you described, Sarah, they have this. Uh, the Hebrews have this stunning victory at at Jericho, and as they are going on to take the next town of Ai, we learn in the book of Joshua, chapter seven, that there is this character, as you mentioned, named Achan. He's taken some of the war spoils, those devoted things um, that Joshua warned specifically against doing um, earlier in chapter six verses 18 and 19. And this is, it's like a little secret sin, like maybe Achan thinks that he can get away with this. Uh, But it results in this terrible defeat at Ai for the Hebrew people. And after trying successively to determine the root of what the the causes for this, this horrible defeat, we eventually get down to the fact that Achan has done something and he finally admits to his greed that he took both personal items um, as well as other objects that were meant to be either destroyed or given to God in the treasury for, for the tent or the temple. God is clearly angry with this in um, chapter 7, verse 1. But as a result of this anger, Achan as well as his sons and his daughters are stoned and the possessions that he took are destroyed as well. You know, maybe this is in a sense, God making a very, very strong statement that when you're fighting, you're not fighting in order to conquer people and make them your possessions and, you know, be greedy and take over everything they've got. I am giving you this land you know, certain parts of it you're going to conquer and turn over to me, but you're going to be different people who live here. Great interpretation, Sarah. Um, I'd also like to see this in terms of a spiritual way. So if we saw this as God telling people to get rid of these, these items that are devoted to me and me alone, what if we thought of the land as our bodies or our temples? Hmm. And God is telling us to get rid of everything that keeps us away from drawing closer to him. You know, don't make a compromise. Yeah. So I think the church fathers really read it like that. And we have the advantage of reading on this side of the cross. And so we can make that spiritual meaning. And I think a lot of these stories are given to us for that purpose so that we can look at them and read on a spiritual level, how do we fight sin? We're not fighting against flesh and blood. So how do we take up the armor of faith and the gospel of peace and fight with the sword of the spirit instead? Amen. It's a wonderful point. I wonder if you could talk about another thing, though, that's um, also in the book of Judges, because I think it really 
helps with some of the arguments against. Often we hear that, you know, they're people too. They can't be that bad. It's only your judgment that says they're evil (laughs) and all that. (laughs) But actually what we see in the course of the book of Judges as the people, as Israel settles into the land, uh, they disobey God over and over again, and they do not remain apart, and they take on the characteristics of the people who are around them. And this becomes very evident at the end of the book. And I wonder if you'd like to talk about the last few chapters and the kind of horrific things that happen there. Yeah, this is um, this is another one of those problematic passages. Um, and you're absolutely right. The book of Judges is just this depiction of the nation of Israel who continually go downhill in terms of their behavior. It starts off all good. We've got some great judges. And then by the time of the end of, of the book, we realize this, this total depravity. And the reason why there is some of this depravity is, yes, uh, basic human nature, sinful human nature. But we also have the results of what happens when the people do not get rid of their the sin and when they do not get rid of the the pagan nations that are surrounding them and the uh, the idolatry and the practices yes yeah you want to tell the story you want to tell the story of what happens yeah yeah sure let's go into it we have this this levite he's a member from the tribe of levi the tribe of levi was assigned to care for and maintain the tent of meeting which eventually becomes the temple in old testament history but a levi um was responsible he was kind of in the religious hierarchy um could have been a priest but not necessarily so this levi takes a concubine and some scholars may suggest it's a wife too and this concubine she either is unfaithful to him or they have an argument about something. And so she goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. The Levite tries to get her to come back. But as he goes back to Bethlehem to get this this wife or concubine, these city scoundrels uh, who happen to be from the tribe of Benjamin demand to the, the father to know the Levite. And this is similar language that what we saw in the Sodom story, demanding to know the angels that visit Lot. And so the the father as host here um, uh, offers what he considers the lesser of two evils at the time. So offers his own virgin daughter and the concubine. Um, now this sounds horrific to us, but this is how the story goes. And then this mob of men reject both him and the proposal. The Levite then thrusts out the concubine. They rape the girl all night and release her in the morning. And when the Levite opens the door in the morning, he finds her collapsed at the threshold of the house. Um, He tries to, to rouse her. She doesn't respond. So he takes her dead body back and cuts it in 12 pieces. And then he sends each piece to all these different tribes of Israel as a testament to how wicked these Benjamites have become. And then when the Israelites see these dismembered body parts, this eventually results in a civil war between these 12 tribes. And they almost destroy the tribe of Benjamin completely. Yeah, I mean, this is an extremely violent violent act. And we could see a number of, of different sinful acts in this whole story here that, that uh, just continued to increase. And why do you think it's in the Bible? Because this isn't something that you would read to your kid. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, you wouldn't hear it in a Sunday liturgy either. <laughs> so, okay, so let's look at this from the historical context. Um, so some scholars may suggest that this practice of dismemberment was at least known in the ancient Near East. Um, for example, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 11, oxen, um, so legitimate sacrificial animals being cut up and, and sent out. Now, here, in contrast, we see a Levite dismembering his own concubine or his wife, so a human person made in the image and likeness of God. So is it possible that maybe this Levite is himself taking on a practice from the pagan nations. We know that there was human sacrifice that, that went on during this time and culture. And, and there was certainly not the level of dignity of, of the human person that we know today. We could also look at this in terms of a textual or allegorical context. So again, as I mentioned earlier, this story comes in, in nearly at the end of the book of Judges. And Maybe it is put there to, again, show the increasing depravity of the people from their leaders, and that is the uh, religious leaders, even civic leaders, on down to the average person. Yeah, I mean, it shows us the results of sin, doesn't it? It's not whitewashing it. Yes. Another way we could look at this, too, is um, symbolically. So if we view this concubine um, as a harlot, and in some biblical translations, she is described as a harlot or a prostitute, then we could say that perhaps she is a symbol of Israel as a nation. Israel was playing the harlot or the prostitute by going after other lovers, going after other uh, pagan nations and their practices. So she becomes unfaithful to her husband, God. Hmm. And then finally, we could see these 12 pieces as representing a fragmentation of those 12 tribes of Israel. All throughout the book of Judges, we see a continuing breakdown of that unity of the 12 tribes that were supposed to, to be kept and now they are fighting against each other. So this dismemberment becomes a symbolic call to say, hey, wake up. This is how, how bad things are getting. We need to come together in the Lord. Yeah, and that maybe is the biggest point. God is going to have to do something. I mean, you, you have God establishing the nation of Israel, and you think that that's going to solve everything, and yet they still need his help, and we still need his help. So we want to keep reading the story to find out what's going to happen and what will God do about it. But it's important to realize that this is not being condoned. This is showing something horrifying. We are meant to be horrified by this story, as we are meant to be horrified by sin. Amen. And I think when we fail to to remember the the horrific side of of what sin can do to human nature, then we lose the sense of how much we need a savior. Exactly. How much we need Jesus. So that's maybe a good time to go forward to the New Testament. You know, as Christians, we read and understand that the whole Bible holds together in Jesus and that all of it points to him and it's about him. And so how, you know, does he continue this? How does he change? Uh, how do we reconcile the violence with his teachings and so on? Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to uh, look at a few somewhat contrasting teachings of, of Christ. We could start off with some of the more perhaps 
pacifist pronunciations or pacifist proclamations. So from the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God in Matthew 5, 9. Jesus goes on to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this sounds very very, very different from the two passages we've we've reflected upon earlier. Later in Matthew 26, when Jesus is, is in the garden and almost uh, in the process of his passion, he says, put your sword back in its place, for those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. But on the other hand, we see some passages, for example, in Luke 12, 51, Jesus says, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Well, this sounds a little strange. Does that mean that that Christ is advocating um, conflict and tension between families or uh, on a wider scale? In his behavior, on the surface, Jesus could be viewed as violent when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple in Luke 19. So would we say that he was acting justly? Was he exhibiting divine justice? Or do we say that maybe the money changers were unjustly taking advantage of people that were coming to worship God? And then finally, I think some of the things we we tend to gloss over at times is that Jesus talks very clearly about judgment against sin and the punishment of hell, especially at the end times. We're at a period right now where we're, we're going to be hearing some of these in the liturgy just prior to Advent, again, to remind us of why we need a Savior. The thing that's coming to my mind as you read these contrasting statements is that we always have to read things not just on their own, but in context of the whole. So how do we see all that in light of what Jesus does, and how does that help us? Yeah, so again— You've mentioned already the uh, the importance of how we as Catholics read Scripture. Pope Benedict XVI, again, I reference um, some of his writings here, that Catholics have to interpret the entire Old Testament as a gradual progression toward Jesus Christ. So in this divine pedagogy or how God teaches or how God reveals himself throughout salvation history, God's plan the fullness of truth is manifested progressively, and it's accomplished slowly in successive stages. And so we need to see that how God reveals himself in the context of the culture in the age of the Old Testament becomes fully revealed in the truth, in the person, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So again, Jesus is the fullness of the truth. He's the apex of how we need to see what is read in the old. We, we read the new in context of the old, but the New Testament fulfills the old. And it's not just that it's a linear progression with something new. I mean, I don't think in Jesus, God shows us some kind of new and improved image that gets rid of the old. Jesus takes the punishment on himself, and that's that was God's plan. But that idea is also in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of Isaiah 53, when he says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so that's kind of what you mean, isn't it? By it's fulfilled in Jesus. Yes. And God uses what is an extremely violent act, the crucifixion, 
to bring our salvation. So out of evil, good comes. There's a phrase that Richard Dawkins uses. He talks about the God of the Old Testament. Is the God of the Old Testament an old God who gets done away with by the God of the New Testament who sends his son with messages of peace? What would you say about that? I would say this is a total resurrection of a heresy that came out of the second century by a guy named Marcion. Uh, Marcion was a, a bishop. He kind of originated this problem of how to reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. He suggested that the two gods were not the same. Well, the church responds and says that this is a complete heresy. You can't separate, as I mentioned earlier, the Old Covenant from the New Covenant, the Old Testament from the New Testament as made in Christ. So the church declares that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as in the New Testament. However, I think as, um, as Dawkins references, and, uh, and I heard it actually just this past weekend, I was chatting with parishioners, and I find that the same problem resurfaces in our modern day thought. We can be reluctant to read that Old Testament because of the perception that it's confusing or violent. Uh, we don't want to reconcile with some of these violent passages. Uh, we're more comfortable with that uh, message of Jesus. Well, it helps us also to read it through the teaching of the church, you know, and not just as kind of a some random text that has floated up out of history. Um, but we know, for example, the church tells us that God is one. He is eternal. He is unchanging. Therefore, if we think that he's two different gods, there's something wrong with the way we're thinking about it. We need to go back to the drawing board, as it were. Um, and also that God is love, not that he's loving but that he is love itself and that everything he does comes out of that love. So here's where then we can look at the whole story. The Jews would be horrified it to think of their God as a, a violent, wrathful, horrible God. They see him as loving and merciful. It's because they know their story. So to look yes. in context of the whole story and then that Jesus reveals God to us, he is God with us. So he is the true picture of God in which we see the God who's willing to die for us. I also think from a, um, a spiritual standpoint, when we encounter these difficulties with certain Old Testament passages or trying to reconcile the this so-called God of the Old Testament, this is a great opportunity for us to bring this these uncomfortable feelings in our prayer life. Hmm. It's important to be able to have a dialogue with God. I mean, after all, that's what prayer is about. It's about communicating with God, even with the tough things. I always encourage my students to ask for the grace to better understand these passages according to God's view mm -hmm. and not my own. And then how do you respond to people, you know, our friends or family members or whatever, who believe God is angry and unjust, and so on. Um, what's the best way to respond to them? I guess I kind of uh, take the academic approach here, and that is to remind them of what how the catechism discusses about how we are to read scripture. Again, as you aptly pointed out, we are to read scripture in its unity. So we don't separate out the Old Testament from the New Testament. We need to read scripture in the tradition of the church. So how has the church um, interpreted the passages from the Old Testament. Um, we need to read scripture in terms of its literal 
context, obviously, what's happening, but we also need to read it spiritually. Um, how does it point us to Christ? How does it point us to the end times and our ultimate goal, which is to be with Christ? Hmm. As you know, I like to close each episode by reflecting on God's Word. And I wonder if there's a passage that you could suggest that will help us to reflect on this theme in a positive way and really take it to heart. Yeah, one of the uh, passages I love comes from St. Paul's writing in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. And the reason I like this one is because it really blends the themes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it also includes quotes from the Old Testament, namely Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, and Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 to 22. And so this, again, to me, shows the unity of both Testaments. Hmm. We also see lots of contrast here in this passage because it shows how the world acts and how God invites us to be like Christ through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. So you said Romans 12 verses 14 to 21? Yeah. Why don't I read it and we can just kind of ponder it as we consider the different passages in it, and then I will close us in prayer, unless there's anything else you'd like to explain about it. I think that's wonderful, Sarah. And I will ask, come Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your mind as it regards evil done in this world, whether we see it done to others or suffer it ourselves. And we thank you that you do judge and that you judge with justice and mercy. Help us to leave that to you. And may we always return good for evil. Help us to trust your goodness even when we don't understand. We thank you for your word and for the life and strength it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture, especially these difficult parts. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. And Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. So thank you, Tamara, for tackling this very difficult subject. Thank uh, you, Sarah, for uh, guiding me through it. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add? 
No, I I think you and really nailed it with that that beautiful prayer, Sarah. And I think it really is a good uh, bookend to this discussion. And uh, I do pray that our listeners would really take that passage to heart and really ask the Lord to show them how He truly is both justice and mercy. Yes, Amen. And I'll I will post that passage on the uh, on the page of your episode on the Ave Maria Press website so that people can take it to prayer. I do wonder, do you have any books that you might recommend that deal with this? I didn't give you any notice of that. So any off the top of your head? None off the top of my head. No, I um, I do have one. Okay. I have one that I would like to recommend. It's a book by Peter Kreeft, uh-huh. and it's called The God Who Loves You, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And I think he does a really beautiful job of explaining how God is love, and he takes it all the way through the history that we read in the um, Old Testament and to the New Testament, and shows how God is love, and deals in a very sensitive and, um, I think, brilliant way. I think he's brilliant, uh, but with the the issue of the the violence and so on. So, um, Peter Kreef, the God who loves you. All right. Where, where, Tamara, can we find out more about your books and ministry, or where can people reach you? As you mentioned, I teach for the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan, and we offer both online and uh, parish-based classes in the Old Testament as well as New Testament, and they, they can be found at uh, cbsmich.org. If you're interested in learning more about some of my own uh, writings on the Bible and on those nuns, N-O-N-E-S, you can go to my website, which is Novo Areopagus. Uh, That's a long one, so I'll spell it. N-O-V-O-A-R-E-O-P-A-G-U-S dot WordPress dot com. And the name of the book is Pre-Evangelization. A New Paradigm for Reaching the Unchurched. Wonderful. I will make sure that that information is in your bio on our website also, in case people didn't catch that spelling. So thank you very much. And this is Sarah Chris Meyer. This has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast, and thank you for listening. In closing, uh, in place of Richard Dawkins' angry tirade, I would like to leave you with the way God described himself to Moses. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God of the Old Testament and of the New. He's a God who is just, a God whose love you can trust. May you find him as you read his word.